In this episode of Leading Insights, we welcome Sarah Davidson, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Carnegie UK. Prior to starting this role in August 2019, Sarah previously worked for the civil service for approximately 25 years. Her most recent role was as the Director General for Organisational Development and Operations at the Scottish Government. Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about your current role? Yes, thanks. And uh, hi, it's nice to be here with you this afternoon. Carnegie is uh, an organisation that's existed for just over 100 years with a mission to improve the well-being of the people of UK and Ireland. And over those 100 plus years, what it's meant to improve well-being and indeed what we've understood about well-being has changed hugely. But the way that the organisation operates nowadays is effectively as an evidence-based public policy organisation. And what I mean by that is that we are interested in the gaps particularly between what well-being should be and what it is and how we can close those gaps. And therefore, we invest in evidence-based research. We look at the evidence that comes out of that and we use the findings to try and persuade principally governments at all levels, but other decision makers uh, and actors in the system to do things differently in order to improve people's well-being. And over the last 10 years in particular, we've become really interested in the question of how governments at, uh, at that level uh, invest in and uh, try to improve societal well-being and uh, our, our overall quest is to understand what it means to live well ourselves and to live well with other people and to try and improve that for everybody. Fantastic and how is it that you actually came to be in your current role? So I'd been in a uh, civil servant for almost 25 years and uh, had spent the last over the last five years or so of that recognizing that if I wasn't already institutionalized I was at quite a high degree of risk of, uh, of institutionalization um, and I'd been toying for quite a long time with the question of if not this then what and although I'd done a few things before I joined the civil service that you know this this was really my career that was where I'd done all my work and uh, I, it became increasingly urgent for me to know whether I was only able to get things done because I'd been there forever, or if actually I had a set of core skills about getting things done and leading people to, to achieve things that I could deploy somewhere else. And I began to worry that the longer I left it to go and find out, the bluntly, the, 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 the more afraid I would be of doing that. Um, so I'd I'd been, been starting to think for a number of years about what next. Uh, but I was also clear that my experience in government had given me um, quite a strong set of criteria that, that, that any new role would have to meet. So well, some very practical things, actually, which were nothing to do with being in government, but I was quite geographically restricted. I, I, couldn't, I really needed to be based in or near Edinburgh. Um, but having said that, I, one of the things I really enjoyed about my later civil service career was that it allowed me to work right across the UK as a, as a, as a very senior civil servant. And I didn't therefore want to have a role that meant that I was suddenly working on a much smaller scale than that. I was really interested in the learning between different, different areas. And I had a very strong set of values, which I probably had anyway, but the, before I joined the civil service, but which had absolutely been honed and developed. So it mattered to, be, to me to be working in an area which was about trying to improve people's lives and also working for an organisation that, in a way, because of its social mission, was committed to the experience of its staff and committed to uh, work being a positive experience for people. So, uh, and I suppose also... Um, for all that I had, and we will come on to talk about this, but for all that I had had a very varied career in government, it was all within the context of government. 
And I couldn't really imagine myself going to something that was so far removed from that, that I would feel sufficiently uh, kind of confident that I could, could pick it up. So something that was still in that kind of public policy world, where I knew that I spoke the language and that I knew some of the people in the broader landscape uh, mattered. So when the Karegi job came up, it was just, it, it, it ticked every box, put it that way. And uh, I was absolutely delighted when, when I got it. And my experience of it since joining has been absolutely true to those things that I was, I was looking for. And how have you found moving to the third sector and what have you learned since you've been there? So it's been it's been great. I during my time in government, I worked uh, quite a lot with the third sector. Actually, like for I think in two jobs, I was the, the kind of official relationship manager with the sector as a whole. Uh, and and yet, I found it really salutary to realise that um, I didn't probably have as good a feel for the sector as I I should have done in those roles. One of the things that people who are leaders and advocates in the sector very often say is that there's too much of a tendency to think the sector is just one thing and lump it all together and talk about the third sector uh, in a way that you lose all the, the nuance and breadth of the very, very many different kinds of organisations that are from you know, tiny grassroots organisations through to big social enterprises. And uh, I think that sheer diversity has been something that I've really uh, come to appreciate a lot more. And the kind of organisation that we are as a, a kind of quasi think tank is very, very different from from uh, you know a big charity that's funding drug research or something like that, huge complexity. Um, but somehow because of that complexity, it can take a while to find your tribe. And uh, I think I'm still trying to work out who and where my tribe are, uh, the members of my tribe are. And that's partly because Carnegie is a slightly unusual organization. We're not a, we're not a pure think tank, um, but we're also not a grant giving philanthropic organization like, uh, like some others are. One of the other things I've found, though, and again, I think I was aware of this in government, but I know I was aware of it in government, but it definitely feels different on the other side, is that um, there is still this sense of a hierarchy of importance uh, that operates in the minds of most of us in the public sector in Scotland, I think, which puts Scottish government at the top and the local government next. And I'm not sure where the NHS sits, uh, probably quite high up. But the third sector is thought of as being quite low down in, in that. And uh, there's lots of rhetoric about being equal partners in delivery and so on, but actually it doesn't really feel that way quite often. And particularly where money is involved, then it can feel quite a toxic relationship or a toxic set of relationships. And that's partly because of procurement mechanisms and so on, which are not really fit for, for, for what we're trying to achieve in terms of outcomes. If I had my way, uh, that I would really uh, want to see a very significant uh, redressing of the balance in relationships between the third sector and other players in the system in Scotland. It feels as though there's a bit of a parent-child relationship. That, and I'm sure everybody colludes in it. I don't think has, and it, no, no one particularly owns that relationship or is responsible for it. But as a result, we all own it and we're all responsible for it. And uh, I would definitely like to see that being, that being addressed a bit more. But the final thing I'd say about the third sector, it's really come to the fore in the last few weeks as, or months now as we've gone through the COVID crisis is the flexibility and agility of the third sector very often to repurpose itself, to adapt, to get to where the need is, is so impressive. And partly the size and scale and bureaucracy of the public sector makes it harder to do that, but there's also something about the mindset. The, whatever we say about the public sector being focused on outcomes, in my experience, the third sector, which is so mission-focused, is so focused on, on outcomes, 
Um, and interestingly, I would say some of what we've seen, you'll know better than I do, but some of what I think we've seen around health and care services in the last few months have really demonstrated that as well, that people will well, they'll push down barriers, they'll jump over everything because they're so focused on what they're trying to achieve. And uh, it's been really interesting to see the third sector in all its manifestations from big organisations to tiny organisations doing that really well. And I think there's something everyone can learn from that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything from the, the COVID pandemic that you personally have learned that, you would, that you're going to try and take forward with you? Um, yes, yes, that absolutely is. What have I learned? Well, I suppose one of the things, one of the things that I've learned, uh, and it's not all, it's not always been easy, this is a personal thing, um, is actually for all that a lot of it's been difficult, it's been so interesting to see how even at the grand old age of pushing 50 and uh, having thought of myself as quite set in my ways, it's been really interesting how actually you can adapt to a very different way of working and living and being really quite easily. Um, that's as I say, it's not to say there's not been things that have been tricky, but it was interesting how quickly I just became accustomed and you know, living in my household became accustomed to a different rhythm, a different routine and different rules. And I think there's a real reminder there that actually we're a lot more flexible and adaptable than probably we often give ourselves credit for. Or let's speak personally, I'm a lot more flexible and adaptable than I, I maybe give myself credit for. So I haven't dug too deeply into what that what that means. And I think the other thing, which I probably knew about myself anyway, but it's been good to have it confirmed, is that actually, again, it's not that this has all been easy, but fundamentally I'm pretty resilient, emotionally in particular. And although there have been some pretty bumpy moments, uh, I have actually been able to stay on a relatively even keel and pick myself up and keep putting one foot in front of the other. So as I said, there's, there's lots of been interesting things that we've been learning organisationally about what's been happening more broadly, but in terms your question as being about me I would say those are probably the, the key things um, and I can and I can absolutely I've completely conformed to the um, lockdown stereotype or cliche and I have discovered that I can bake sourdough <laughs> and that's been a real that's been a real achievement I know I don't I don't know anyone that doesn't have like a sourdough starter I have to say that I failed yeah. miserably at yeah. it so well done um, and so what hurdles have you personally faced in your career and how have you overcome them so I was thinking about this a bit uh, earlier and I think the honest truth is that most of the hurdles that I have faced in my career have been ones that have been um, entirely of my own making and therefore hurdles in my head more than in reality so I've been incredibly fortunate to maybe come back and talk about it a bit afterwards, but I think I've had great opportunities in my career. A lot of them have been made for me rather than me having to make for myself, but at least that's the way it feels when I look back on them. Um, I've been surrounded by people who I genuinely felt wanted to help me succeed, and that's been great. So when I look back and think about the things that I found difficult or things that I regretted, a lot of them are about stories that I think I told myself about what felt a little bit too uh, difficult to do or too scary to do or things that I wasn't quite ready to do. So, for example, I, I can look back and think, wouldn't it have been great to have gone and worked abroad for a while? I would have loved to have done that. And had I wanted to make that happen, I could easily have made that happen. And yet by the time that I thought, oh, my goodness, how did I not do that? Domestic circumstances had changed. It was harder to make happen and, and all of that. And the more senior you get in your career, the harder it is actually to just go and kind of have a level transfer to go and try something else. So I think I I think I've had a a kind of risk appetite that has been lower than lower than it needed to be. 
And uh, I think that was the, there's things that that I that I could have done that I didn't do. So I still think, yeah, probably my mindset was quite often to think all the reasons I couldn't do something rather than think about the reasons I could. So I quite often have to be persuaded by someone that, yes, I could do this job or I should apply for this or I should speak up because whatever I thought was of as much value as, as anybody else. I think that that then met an organisation which can be quite paternalistic. And, and maybe it's the shadow side of what I said a moment ago about being surrounded by people who wanted to help me succeed and being kind of taken care of. There was a sense that there was always the organisation which would pick you up and, you know, put you in one job and then put you in another job then put you in another. And if, like me, you started on a, a kind of fast-track talent scheme, then you were in the group of people that people paid particularly careful attention to making sure that you went from the right job for you and the right job for the organisation to the next right job for you and right job for the organisation. And I think if you've got a dutiful streak, which I probably do, then in that you hear more the right job for the organisation and you feel you should respond to it and maybe don't pay as much attention to, well, is this really the right job for me? And I think I, um, I probably assumed too much and for too long that people in the organisation who didn't really know me all that well knew what was right for me. One of the bits of advice I've quite often given to new graduate entrants or first stream entrants or, uh, or, or indeed new modern apprenticeship uh, entrants, that it's really important you don't outsource your own agency for what's good for you. So I think when I think about the hurdles, I've been really, really fortunate. that I don't think there are things, or if there are, I'm blind to them, uh, which held me back that were placed in my way. But I do think that I see more clearly the older I get some of the things which I put in my own way which if I had my time again, I would like to do something like to do something a bit different with. And as I say, one of the things I, I encourage people to do uh, as a mentor myself is to really uh, ask yourself the question about what is it that you're putting in your own, your own way. So have you had a, an inspirational mentor throughout your career? And if so, what did you learn from them? I, I've been very lucky. I've worked for some people who are actually as kind of my managers who I would say the relationship was um, as much a mentoring one as a, as a, a kind of formal management one. And, and the people who were best at that were the people who were good storytellers. I learned a huge amount from people who, when you asked a question about how do things get done around here or how should I think about this, who responded with stories. And I think an organisation like the Scottish Government, where so many people stay for so long, meant that actually, you know, what is an organisation but a collection of people's stories, actually? Um, organisations are just people and their histories. I always found that people, something about the power of storytelling is it's, it, it's non-directive. It's not somebody saying you should do this, but it's somebody giving you, in a story, you get the context, you get the colour, you get the characters, and you also get an insight into people's motivations and why someone acted in the way they did and what the outcome was. And I've often found that a really helpful way of then helping me to reflect on the situation that, that I'm in. I think I've learned a lot from, I've, I've been very lucky uh, in two, on two occasions, I had an opportunity to be part of Cabinet Office talent development schemes. Obviously, it was the original one I came on in the first stream, but I did one uh, when I was a deputy director. So that was just kind of my first step into the senior civil service, something called the High Potential Development Scheme. And then again, when I became a director general in the Scottish government, I was on a, a scheme for, for directors general. And what that did was it brought you together with a, a comparatively small number of people who you didn't really know. And I, I didn't know in the work context at all because they weren't Scottish government people. And in quite small action learning sets or uh, peer-to-peer mentoring, 
uh, you had an opportunity to talk through issues that you were wrestling with and to get other people's perspective on them. And I, I learned a huge amount from, from other people in, in those settings. And that was partly because they were deliberately designed to create a safe space where people would be very open, um, open about the things they found difficult as well as the things that they were successful in. But given the nature of the discussions, more often the things they found difficult. It was really helpful and revealing to see people who quite often were big names of people who were thought of as being successful and well-known in Whitehall, uh, talking privately about the stuff that they found hard. And that was always really helpful, uh, particularly if, like me, you'd a tendency to assume that everybody else found things easy and, and I didn't. Um, but also helpful because when it was your turn to talk about your issue, uh, it was so helpful to hear other people either saying, oh, my goodness, you're right, that, that's awful, um, or saying, um, sounds to me like you're handling that really well, and that's how I'd have handled it. And that, that kind of feedback, which is about a real thing, as opposed to a kind of generic broad, oh, you're doing great, which I think it's nice, but it's not helpful. That really specific, I have understood the context you're talking about, I've heard what you're doing, and that sounds like it's, it, it, it's a good thing to do, I found really helpful. And then a couple of times when I've made a big step up or what's felt like a big step into a new role, I've been really fortunate to be working alongside people who have kind of slipped into a mentoring role. I was particularly fortunate when I was when I did the job at the Scottish Parliament. I worked for a number of years on the Scottish Parliament building project, and that was a very big step into a into a different and exposed and difficult role for me. And I worked worked alongside somebody who was very experienced, both as a civil servant, but also in um, the whole business of construction and, and design. And uh, just to have somebody to have conversations with uh, at a time when things were very, very fraught and where I needed somebody who I knew was completely invested in our joint success. Uh, and that made a whole difference. Uh, it made a huge difference. And for the final mentoring relationship, which was a relatively recent one and made a really big impression on me, was a reverse mentoring experience. Although it maybe a bit of reverse mentoring, a bit of mutual mentoring, uh, which was set up. A couple of years ago, all the members of the executive team in the Scottish government entered into a, a mutual or, or reverse mentoring relationship with someone from our race equality network. And I was really, uh, really fortunate to be paired with a, a brilliant uh, young woman working as a lawyer in the Scottish government, a Muslim woman. And uh, that was hugely, hugely kind of fascinating, instructive for me about all sorts of things, I mean, about being a lawyer, about being a woman, about being a, a Muslim, about being all three and a tennis player. But that, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And it really made me realise the extent to which the more senior you become in an organisation, the more you find yourself falling into the, the natural pattern that people are always looking for you to have the answers or looking for you to provide the support. And flipping that and actually being the person who was allowing yourself to be mentored by someone felt was much harder than I'd expected it would be. I really struggled at first not to take control of the discussion and so on. And she very nicely and gently, after a few meetings, pointed out that that wasn't really what was supposed to be going on here. <laughs> and, uh, and we worked really hard on you know, me zipping it and, and listening. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really, really helpful. That's really fascinating to hear and encouraging, you know, that you can have these mentoring relationships throughout any stage of your career and take quite a lot from it. What, what advice would you give your younger self? I think in some ways I've probably said it all already when I was talking about the, the kind of take a risk thing. So one of the books that I read a few years ago, and I know it's a bit controversial, and I don't like it all myself, but it was Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And uh, Sheryl Sandberg, I think she's a CEO at Facebook, and she wrote this book 
you know, design principally for women, encouraging them to kind of lean in at the board table rather than lean, out, lean into their careers and so on. And uh, as I say, there's bits of it I liked and bits of it I didn't. But one bit of it that really chimed with me was her account of, sto- of encounters that she had had, particularly with women in kind of younger or mid-career, who she would see leaning back rather than leaning in. And when she would ask them, you know, why, why, why aren't you going for this promotion or why aren't you stepping up for this opportunity that's come? They would tell her this whole long story about how well they better not, they didn't, they weren't going to go for that because they didn't think it would fit with having children, for example. And she would say, oh, I didn't know you had a child. And they would say, oh, no, I haven't. But I'm hoping that I'm going to meet someone, I'm going to fall in love, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have a child. So because of all of that's kind of going to go on, I better not go for this short life task force over here because they you know because that doesn't fit. And one of the things that she talked about doing as a mentor was trying to get these stories from outside people's heads out onto the table so that people could kind of see how ridiculous they were. Not that the aspiration for your life was ridiculous, but that it was possible to kind of pro- progress things on parallel tracks and that you didn't have to put you know, all of your career opportunities on hold or all of your other things that might come along because you were kind of building a castle in the air about something that might or might not happen. And that resonated with me because, although not necessarily in exactly that um, formulation, it made me realise that part of what I've done, I think, is, is invented all sorts of stories in my head about what might happen and oh, if I do this, this might not happen and if I take this opportunity, something. And as soon as you begin to articulate it, you think, oh, my goodness, how, how could I have been so limiting? But of course, if you don't articulate it, then it becomes quite convincing to yourself. So... I, you know, I think my kind of advice to my younger self would have been to say out loud some of the things that I was thinking, um, and also to say them out loud to people who who might say that those are great aspirations to have, whatever they are, but they're entirely consistent with taking an opportunity to go do nine months in Brussels or a couple of years at the cabinet office or whatever, or taking a career break for a while and going to do something completely different. And uh, as I say, I think I think particularly if you join an organisation as I did. On a programme, there's a risk that the programme becomes the thing and you are looking from one job to another job to the next job. Like that resonates so much with me when you work in healthcare, particularly as a doctor through your training and same with Thomas with his uh, dentistry programme, you are just completely on a conveyor belt. And until very recently, it's, it's been sort of slightly frowned upon to step off that and take different opportunities and our fellowship year was an opportunity to step off that and see things in a different light and gain new experiences and new knowledge but the the mass opinion on that from within like my department for example was sort of like wow that's a risk you know gosh you're brave doing that and and it's really not brave it should be what everyone does you know and and we had a mentor during our fellowship called um ron mcvicker who's a a gp in inverness and a postgraduate dean and he talked about like planned happenstance and and just sort of meandering your way through opportunities and and saying yes to things and not planning too far ahead because you don't know where where you're you're going to be taken one of the most inspirational uh people i ever heard speak was the chief executive of the eden project what, he had this thing which was a bit like that, which is planned serendipity. So he used to, you know, inevitably, as head of the Eden Project, he would be sent thousands of requests to come and speak at things or to meet people. And he had a whole team of people whose job it was to triage those 
and to make recommendations about the things that were worthy of his time. And he was fine with that. But at the end of every week, he would come and put his hand into the bag of all the ones that were the rejects and he would pull one out and whatever it was, he would do it. And as he said, it had led him to all sorts of conversations that he wouldn't otherwise have had, wet wet village halls and the ends of the earth on a Friday night and so on. But I really like that idea that you can, you know, you can create serendipity for yourself uh, in quite deliberate ways. Definitely. Okay, well, we've been asking everyone we've interviewed as our final question. What, in another life, what would you have been? So I asked my son this question over lunch because I was interested to know what he, I've got a seven-year-old son and I wondered what he, so so the first thing he said was a cook, which I took as a surprising uh, surprising vote of confidence, given that most of the time he looks with uh, slightly less enthusiasm at what I've put on his plate in front of him. And then he said, or maybe a babysitter. And then he said, or maybe you could have been a normal mummy. And I said, but I am a normal mummy. And he said, no, I mean, a normal mummy who doesn't have to go and work sometimes. So that cut me to the quick, obviously. <laughs> Um, so then I was thinking, but what would I think? I think if, an, if I could wave a magic wand in another life, I think I would have been a travel writer. I find that I, I love travel. I haven't done so much of it recently, and I, but I just love it. Local, national, international. So I find particularly when I'm traveling alone, it's an opportunity to see things differently and think about things. There's something about the way that your mind is liberated when you're traveling alone. And I've always found the urge to write when I do that. So I think I would have, I would have loved to be a travel writer. Oh, well, you still do that. I could. So much, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.